The domestic season may be over, but we still have the Champions League and Europa League to come, and Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last, or anytime goal scorers. With over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live with Bet365 Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only. Please gamble responsibly. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! Brilliant! And time, and time again. Crank up the music, charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Who are the last crack East European outfit? What is the threshold for a gruelling midweek European trip? Who are the most Europa League club of all? And just who are those children employed to wave a giant Champions League ball on the pitch before kickoff? Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Access to The Athletic is currently free for 30 days. Go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod to sign up. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. With me for this gruelling, tricky, awkward looking, potential banana skin of a trip into Europe is, first of all, a debut for James Horncastle, European football expert. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you very much. How Glad are you? to be here. <laughs> yeah, it's really nice to have you. Uh, alongside you, another debutant, in fact, and another James, James Moore. Hi, Adam. How are what you? could possibly go wrong? Yeah, I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm all right. So let's lay this out straight away. This is my strategy for this episode, where I, um, me, an amateur, will have to deal with two people with the same name. Uh, uh, James Horncastle, I guess we could go, we could call you Hammers or something yeah. like that. We could, we, we, could, we could sex you up. So let's let's consider that. We're not going to do it, but that's just an option. Uh, <laughs> James Moore, perhaps we could just go with full names at all times because as someone pointed out to me last night, Brentford's Ollie Watkins is now into full name at all times territory. So I could treat you like two up and coming kind of wonder kids and just, just say your full names at all time. I think that's what I'll go for. This is the Jack Wilshire protocol, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's never been known as Wilshire. It's always just Jack, Jack Wilshire or something like that. Or you could have just gone with the match of the day classic of Messrs, Moors and Horncastle. <laughs> I can't say Messrs with a straight face. Uh, James Moore has, <laughs> has few enough syllables for me to go full name all the time. So yeah, I don't I know, we'll, we'll muddle through it. Luckily, it's not James Richardson presenting, but it is a shiny headed football culture icon nonetheless <laughs> so before we venture into our little european journey a few small matters to take care of for the adjudication panel this week first of all my eyes have been opened this week to a whole new world which is random club country combo twitter accounts my eyes were opened james horncastle when <laughs> bournemouth turkey uh, tweeted out their condolences for the departure of eddie howe from bournemouth and uh, and so I thought this this is absurd. So it was open, it opened doors to all sorts of corners of the world. We had Linfield, Brazil, Scunthorpe, Belarus. What's going on? Well, it's a global game, Adam. I mean, come on. <laughs> like uh, five or six years ago, I became sort of aware that much of my Twitter following is is in Indonesia. Um, right. Because Serie A is huge in Indonesia for the same reason that it was huge in mm. uh, in the UK in the nineties, in that it's completely well it was free to watch they have an indonesian james richardson who like basically oh, sort of sits God. outside a piazza <laughs> with a, a gazette della sport and it's like a parallel universe so um you know i was fully kind of inducted into this kind of indonesian um football italian italian football culture that they have there where they basically erect stands in gyms like it's <laughs> i don't know a cordova in, at san siro they sing yeah. all the chants and then when i That's went great. to singapore to follow what into last 
last summer into a playing Manchester United and uh, United are huge in Singapore and the only little wedge of Inter fans in the stadium were from Indonesia and they were harder football fans than I think I've uh, like a more hardcore group of football fans than I think I've ever seen that supports a club that isn't in the country they live in it was incredible I'm quite jealous that they're they're enjoying football like I was 20 years ago. I, I bet they're watching Football Focus and enjoying it. That's uh, that's what I'm really jealous of. James Moore, uh, some further examples of this uh, mini phenomenon: Concord Rangers Brazil, South Shields Brazil, Luton Town Argentina, I, which is I guess a little bit more explicable. I don't know. I guess some of these have logic to them. But, you know, Brentford, Japan, where do I stop here? I'm not surprised that a club like Luton would have an international fan base. I mean, they, they've kind of dabbled with the upper the upper echelons of the English game, haven't they? Con- Concord, Concord Rovers feels like... Uh, is it Concord Rovers or Concord Con- Rangers? I should Concord know. Rangers. Concord Rangers, with apologies to the Cowley Brothers. Yeah, that, that strikes me as a slightly more unusual one, given they've, uh, I mean, with the greatest of respect, not, not really kind of troubled, uh, troubled the back pages too often down the years. I'd be very curious on how that came about. I would love there to be like a Barrytown Patagonia or something like that, <laughs> which is, you know, all down to just like that Welsh-speaking community that there is um, there Too in much Argentina. logic there. That, 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 <laughs> would be, that, would be, that would have an explanation behind it. So, James Moore, in the little fruit machine of your mind, give me a random country and a random club and, and uh, you have to set that Twitter up, uh, account up straight after. Oh, uh, let, let's, um, let, let's have Wingate and Finchley. Yeah. Uh, Vanuatu. Oh, nice. That That works for me. Our second matter to discuss before we get into the meat and potatoes of this episode is our second glimpse that we were given of Tottenham's all or nothing Amazon Prime documentary. The first one was leaked uh, as Jose Mourinho got very potty mouthed in a team meeting. But then this was the first official glimpse, James Moore of this documentary, tweeted out by Annie Mack, of all people. Talk us through it, because it seems like a very low-key promo for what is should be a bells and whistles documentary. So we, we see uh, Jose Mourinho in what we can probably assume is one of his first training sessions with the club, surrounded by the players in that kind of way that you often see on Sky Sports News, kind of walking around between them. And he makes a beeline for Jaffa Tanganga and says, how do I pronounce your name? And Tanganga replies, Tanganga. Now, which is interesting because I would have thought that perhaps Mourinho actually was asking him how to, pre- uh, to pronounce Jaffa, which I would say was probably <laughs> more troubling of those two names, but whatever. Uh, but it, it seems to me like the only reason Mourinho has asked that question is so, is so he can turn to the group and say, yeah, actually, people pronounce my name wrong. It's Jose, not Jose, which I believe <laughs> is the, the Spanish pronunciation of that, right? I hesitate to say this because I, you know, I don't want to get into this territory, but it, it, there is a hint of, can we just talk about me for a second? Uh, well, about the, the great thing about this, Adam, is that yeah, basically he lets us all know that it really offends him when people get his name wrong. And yet mm. he has repeatedly, deliberately uh, mispronounced uh, people's names to get under their skin. Um, it's a kind of Mourinho trope from down the years. So do you remember when there was Tito Villanova, he called him Pito Villanova. Um, ah. And then there was there was another guy in Italy called, I think it's Marco Barretta, who was like the coach of Siena, who he in- insisted on calling like Barnetta, um, something oh. like that. And he just knew what he was doing all the time, as Jose always does. Is it possible he's given away a little bit too much? I mean, I'm not suggesting he's thin-skinned, but if it really annoys him that much, surely it's going to be the first thing that people people do to wind him up from next season. My issue with this is, it's, it's, it, is this really going to draw people into a documentary? Or, on the other hand, is access to Premier League clubs so rare now that we'll lap up anything like this? But anyway, we should listen to this in all its low-key glory. How do I say your name correctly? Wow. Tanganga. Tanganga. Yeah. I hate to tell the wrong names, man. Right. Everybody says my name wrong. <laughs> Everybody calls me Jose. I'm not Jose. I'm Jose. <laughs> That's not enough to make me subscribe, is it? <laughs> no, but, but Adam, the, the music makes it sound like it's such dramatic <laughs> moments. <laughs> it, ma- it makes it sound like Frodo is about to just embark on this epic quest <laughs> to find the ring. I mean, all, all we're discovering really is that Jose Marino likes, him, likes to be called Jose. Brilliant. Ideally, hope it gets more more compelling from that. I, I I'm on his side to an extent. I'm I'm sick of people saying Jose because it, it it just makes no sense after 15 years of having him in English football that we still call him that. James Horncastle, I'm going to throw this to you first of all. Who were the last crack East European outfit? 
who are the last team that could potentially be labelled with that tag? I think Shakhtar, no? I think Shakhtar is still yeah. a oh, crack European team, going. just full of Brazilians. Although uh, it, it does feel like they've re- relocated Rio de Janeiro or Recife into like mm. the Donbass when they were allowed <laughs> to play there. So, you know, whether they are what we would classify as the classic archetypal crack Eastern European team, I don't know okay. in this globalised age we live in. We need to get into the nuts and bolts of this. Uh, Shakhtar, I would kind of allow as kind of an honorary kind of 2.0 version of the crack East European outfit. But, James Moore, I would say these are the defining characteristics of the classic crack East European outfit. Um, first of all, crack doesn't necessarily mean highly successful. They just mean kind of <laughs> mystifying and uh, yeah. hard to penetrate. You've got no videos of them, that sort of thing. I, th- I would say probably the last kind of true version of this would be Lovanovsky's second Kiev team, 98-99. Absolutely. So, yeah, so just before Shevchenko went to Milan, so that was his last season there. They got to the Champions League semifinals. They won the Ukrainian title. And it's, and it's presumably... I mean, I guess pre-YouTube, so you couldn't just go and watch them the week before and go, car, they're good. So I think this might be just right at the cusp of when yeah. crack East European outfits just became teams you know quite well. Yeah, I think so. And that, that Kiev team had that that quality of having two players that you'd heard of. And you did miss mm. out Soko Reprov there, which is a little bit disrespectful. Uh, <laughs> yeah, but the true, rest of the true. team, I mean, I guess maybe they had Lujny as well. They probably did. Yeah. But yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, it, it was two players above all others and the rest of the team were kind of sort of taking second billing to that to that front too. What I would say about that, and this is probably what differentiates them from the from the Shakhtar Donetsk of the modern day, is that another crucial aspect of a crack East European outfit is that they make up pretty much 90% of their national team's lineup for any major tournament. Yeah. So if you think of Kiev back in the 80s, they were basically the USSR team and Lobanovsky's Kiev probably made up a good chunk of the Ukraine team in the late 90s as well. So I think that's crucial. They, they have this kind of sort of telepathic understanding because Lobanovsky has drilled them on his Amstrad CPC 464 for all week <laughs> and now they know what to do. So uh, I, I miss crack East European outfits. And and James Horncastle, this kind of taps into a kind of slight regret amongst people of our generation, let's say, of our vintage. The fall of the Soviet Union, is there? <laughs> no, no, that's absolutely not. What I'm saying is it's the lamenting for a certain mystique in European football, and particularly when it comes to tricky trips. I feel like, no, mm. there are no tricky trips left anymore because if you go to a team from Russia or a team from Ukraine or Romania, there's a fair chance that they'll have a decently shiny stadium that looks like it could hold its own in the upper reaches of the championship it, they, they, there are no kind of awkward conditions to deal with anymore you don't have any welcome to hell in turkey anymore do you or am i overstating this no the kind of tricky trip now is um like going to what is it is it krasnodar where they have that stadium which which essentially has uh, allows them to project all these kind of amazing images on the roof oh. that makes makes it, it it makes you feel like you're playing a game in a galaxy far far away um, oh, right. rather than in a kind of rickety old stadium i mean i have nostalgia for uh, Rota Volgograd, um, uh. sort of putting out united in the Is that when what, first round of the UEFA cup it was, yeah. When and he, he, um, I mean, he should never be forgiven for this because he, <laughs> he denied Vota Volgograd becoming, I think, the first ever team to win at Old Trafford in a European game. Can you imagine that? The first ever European team to win there would be yeah. Rota Volgograd, formerly known as Tractor Stalingrad. I mean, that is oh, just nice. that. That would have been. Could you a, have a more Soviet football team name than Tractor <laughs> Stalingrad? <laughs> <laughs> That's immaculate. I love that so much. Yeah, when it comes to sort of Turkey and Welcome to Hell, I think the, all you'll get now is Bursa Spores Stadium, I think is shaped like a crocodile. Mm. So that's about as scary as it could potentially get now. Maybe, yeah, no, not doing a disservice to the uh, to the away horrors that you might get in Turkey these days. James Moore, what constitutes a gruelling trip in Europe now? Because I think, you know, Premier League footballers, they're getting a, they're getting a private jet. I mean, it can't be that awkward to fly eight hours to Azerbaijan, can it? What constitutes a gruelling trip now? Yeah, I think it must be determined by how many episodes of whatever Netflix box set they're going to be watching on their tablet. <laughs> over the course of the flight. I think there must be a cutoff point there, maybe. If you're getting a, a long-haul flight to, yep. let's say, Shakhtar Karagundi, do you remember them? Mm. Um, and, and, and you're on that flight, and all the, thi- the only thing you can think about is that these guys have, sh- have sacrificed the sheep ahead of you coming to play against them. <laughs> 
in, in, in basically this kind of they're willing the football gods. Does that um, add to, some extra gruel to the You know, I, yeah, I, I think at that kind of level of animal cruelty um, and, and the prospect <laughs> of there being blood spilled on the athletics track, uh, that's that sort of oh, yes. around, the, around the football pitch, you know, perhaps that's still there. We talked about this before. Just how much athletics do they do in Eastern Europe? It's absolutely <laughs> astonishing well, how many athletics what, tracks around stadiums. What, what we all want from a crack Eastern European team is the kind of Dolph Lundgren um, montage from Rocky Rocky <laughs> Four with like "Take It to the Limit" uh, from mm. the Eagles playing in the background, which yeah. you know. Uh, we did speak to Andrew Shevchenko on, on on the Athletic a few what a couple of months ago, where mm-hmm. he gave us some insight into like the kind of technology that they were using to oh, yeah. um, for like reaction times and peripheral vision, where you're like just seeing yeah, like right. pink squares and green triangles on like a really blurry kind of screen, and you're just like clicking on the right, clicking on the left, and all this sort of thing. That's that's what we need to see. From, from the Eastern European contingent again. All we've got over here is, yeah, he's been banging him in in training. I couldn't, I couldn't help but stick him in. <laughs> and they've got reaction times back in the 80s with Kiev. Well, honestly. Amazing. Um, uh, our listeners have, have waded into this gruelling trip debate. RJ says it's not the length of the trip, it's the destination, really. Uh, Shakhtar's trip to Maritimo, for example, would be less gruelling than going the other way. So it's it's not so much how long it takes, it's where you're going, apparently, that the, that uh, that is about how gruelling it is. Adam Gray says it's probably gruelling if you travel far enough east for your game to be the early kickoff, which I think <laughs> yes. is it's a very yeah. benchmark. Yeah, I, mean, I think the, the, that, the, that's cast iron, isn't it? The, 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 I kind of learnt a lot of my geography from playing football manager um, oh, in, in the kind of mid to late 90s. Um, so my capital cities game is very strong <laughs> when that, that comes on a pub quizzes. But the, the the Europa League and still the Champions League, it, it does yield surprises. Like I'd, I'd yeah. never heard of Zoya Luhansk before until they, mm. they started appearing in the Europa League a couple of years ago. So um, I would say that that felt you know, sort of occasionally being involved in BT's Europa League coverage that year, that felt that it was a, a that was a grueling trip because it was cold. It was it was far mm. away. Players had never heard of it. They couldn't even imagine what, what yeah. playing in Luhansk was going to be like. Yeah. Um, magic. From an armchair fan's perspective, this to me sums up what a, a way tie in, East Europe, in an East European country sounds like. This is Alania Vladikavkaz versus Liverpool in the 1995-96 UEFA Cup. I just need to talk you through all the elements of this that make it embody the discomfort of an East European away tie, even for someone who's watching it back home. You've got Barry Davis sounding like he's recording it from a cupboard somewhere. (laughs) Um, You've got the uh, sort of random trumpets playing out from the crowd before anything has actually happened, which I think is absolutely the the mise-en-scene audio style of of an East European away tie. Then Then this kind of just just blanket roar of a crowd when something goes in it's just like there's no yes it's just ah and then uh english english player making a terrible mistake on a bad pitch that's david james so i guess he was a good candidate for that it didn't have to be in europe though adam for that to happen at that time (laughs) no absolutely not but uh, yeah i think it just it just adds another layer to this i I suspect i suspect barry davis at some point during those two hours of, of that broadcast blamed the foreign tv director for getting a replay wrong which is uh which is um, which are one of the staples, James Moore, of of foreign broadcasting in the nineties. I feel. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, although I, I would say that's is that more of a World Cup thing, a European Championship thing. I feel like that's no, the kind of thing. No, I don't think so. I'd say think? a European away tie in one of the competitions, definitely. Okay. Okay. No, yeah, interesting. Yeah. Uh, on on a domestic level, uh, James Moore, um, sort of Champions League coverage in the nineties. I, I believe is was the driving force between a lot of people getting sick of Manchester United and hating Manchester United because they because yeah. obviously it was a closed shot back then you didn't have the top four teams going in and because United were winning the league all the time they were dominating midweeks people were used to you know weekend coverage but they were dominating people's midweeks you'd have Coronation Street or Emmerdale then it would be Man United and personally on a, on, a, on another level this is why I don't I, whilst he was an incredible commentator I don't have the same love for Brian Moore as other people do. 
because all, every time I think of Brian Moore, all I hear is Ryan Giggs running down a wing here for Manchester United, and it and and it, it just I'm sick of them. I'm sick of Man United. So it's the connotations <laughs> you build up. I'm getting this off my chest. Um, Sorry, did are you, you, feel are the you same? asking this question so you could do the impression like Mourinho asking yes. that question so he could? Yes. Yeah, okay, fine. Exactly. It was a very good impression. Thank you. Adam, I mean, you say you're, you you were sick of watching Manchester United because they were the only team that were on after Emmerdale or Coronation Street in midweek in the 90s. But more often than not, particularly in the first, what, five, six years, you would see them lose. Was that not gratifying when you'd like basically see them really struggle against Honved or something like no, that? I just, or... All I really remember, all I really remember is the sort of the glory nights, the sort of beating Serie you know, peak Serie A teams at Old Trafford in that kind of English at home in Europe kind of way where they just steamroller teams and they just wouldn't and the and so these these fancy Dan Continentals wouldn't know what's coming to them. That that was that was the kind of the cliche <laughs> scenario. Just, English teams are just going to run over you at home because that's all we do. Just to go back to the Welcome to Hell game. I mean, that was yeah. that doesn't feel like it exists anymore. It feels the closest thing I think players get to it is logging onto Twitter after a game. <laughs> Hey everyone, James Richardson here from the Totally Football Show. Listen, 11 months on, we're finally getting to the best bit of this football season because the Champions League and Europa League are about to restart at the sharp end. Last eight knockout tournaments await in Portugal and Germany and we'll be following both competitions with special nightly podcasts every single match day, ready for you to download first thing in the morning. So have your breakfast with Honigstein, Horncastle, Cox, Gurionov and all your other totally favourites and me as we wave goodbye to this epic footballing year in style. Our daily Totally Summer Special is available on Apple, Spotify and all the usual places. And of course, you can also listen to it ad-free on the Athletic app. Football, by the hell. This leads us on nicely to a section of this podcast which I could only describe as Thursday Night's Channel 5. Um, which is the general theme of this, James Horncastle, is, is kind of the, the doing down of the UEFA Cup slash Europa League. And then the backlash that comes after that so with people saying, actually, you know, it's a genuinely interesting competition. So I guess the, the actual status of it falls somewhere between the two, right? Why is it, is it really so bad? Well, I think it just became such a catchy chant for for, for fans yeah. to sing at, at their rivals. You know, Thursday night's Channel Five. It's got a great ring to it. I believe that has stuck. You know, it, it hasn't really got to ch- Thursday night's BT Sport. That just it doesn't have the same ring to it. No, it doesn't. It's probably just as well for you. <laughs> we skirted around that, but we but yeah, but in comes James Moore straight away to the point. Now that's fine. This kind of prevailing attitude towards the end of a league season, where it's, it 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 strikes some people that it's a bit of an inconvenience to qualify for the Europa League when. When I was growing up, the European places were something to strive for. Uh, I don't want to get all old manish about it, but uh, James Moore, it, it, you know, let's take Spurs for example. I, I'm going to read you out this this what well, it, it went viral. This list of potential opponents they could draw in the Europa League second qualifying round: Kesla FK, Torshavn, Nefci Baku, <laughs> K-Star Kislorda, Ordebashi Shimkent. Suchieska Nixic, FK Ritterai, FH Hefnafiada, Santa Coloma, Shakhtar Seligorsk, Kalyu Nome, Baka Topola, Vojvodina Novi Sad, and OFI Heraklion. Now, let, I mean, setting aside the fact that fans probably won't be allowed to go to these ties, um, they all sound like quite fun destinations for uh, late September, don't they? I mean, genuinely, I'm quite excited by that by that list. See, the thing is with Spurs in the Champions League is I think they've just about reached saturation point in terms of Mm -hmm. this off-stated thing that that, that you end up playing the same teams all the time. You know, if if you look at the groups for next season, if if they'd qualified for the Champions League, they almost certainly would have been second seeds. And then, you you know, you look at the the top seeds for next season, you've got Madrid, who Spurs played two years ago, Juventus, who Spurs played two years ago, Bayern, who they played this season... Yeah, you know, in the, in the third pot there'll be loads of teams they played as well, and you, and I think I, I've done the maths, I've run the numbers, and in eight seasons <laughs> playing in the Europa League between 2006 and 2016, Spurs played yeah. 43 different different clubs. 
which you know is about sort of five a season which is pretty decent going really that's the diversity you want from a european competition exactly this is this exactly. is a, a return as much as we possibly could ever have to the mystique of of european football in the 80s and early 90s which is what we're we getting ourselves into i know it's an early round and it won't mean a great deal in the grand scheme of things but the, these are still kind of the voyages into the unknown that we that we, we hope for and uh, but james Moore, you you're picking up on a good point here i i, I know that uh, fans of, of a club who haven't made the Champions League are always going to build up this narrative that it's okay. But I think this might be a thing. I think you can have Champions League fatigue, especially if you think about what Spurs have been through over the last two years. Can you really be arsed with that again? Can you be bothered with the with the <laughs> tense the tension of the of the group stage and then the the just the heart wrenching what will be will be in the knockout session? I, I just don't. I, I can't bear that every season. I think a little breather is nice. And the Europa League is just something different to think about. And I know the, I know the sort of Thursday Sunday routine might grate after a while, but it's just a nice little break, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, mm. you know, Spurs are never going to, well, very unlikely to ever better getting to the final in 2019. And the Europa League, of course, you won't need me to tell you, is the scene of the greatest match in Tottenham's history, the, the win over Esteras Tripolis in 2014. Which 100%. again. You, you, know, you know what's special about this game, don't you, Adam? Or do you no. need me to tell you? Please do. One, Harry Kane's first hat-trick for Spurs. Two. Oh, I know where you're going. <laughs> Eric Lamella with the Rabona. And three, oh. Harry, Harry Kane in goal. Yes! Yes! There you go. What was a game. He kind of dived over a free kick, is that right? Yeah, it was abysmal. So, oh, fantastic. I feel like Harry Kane should be good in goal. Actually, no, he's a bit too lumbery, isn't he? In, in, a, in, a, in the nicest possible sense, he's a bit lumbery. Well, he's got that kind of lack of self-awareness self kind of in terms of like doing himself harm, I think, hasn't he? Which you kind of need to be a goalkeeper, I think. In that list of Spurs possible Europa League opponents were a few teams you could quite confidently describe as minnows. Uh, James Horncastle, I put it to you that this is the ultimate example of a European competition minnow. Uh, if you go back to the UEFA Cup of 97-98, which I'm sure you're very familiar Dundee United were drawn against uh, Andorran giant C.E. Principat, uh, who they beat 17-0 on aggregate. Uh, and uh, I remember reading it, I think it was in Shoot magazine at the time, uh, that uh, C.E. Principat were actually the Real Madrid supporters club of Charlie's Restaurant in Andorra. <laughs> Could you get more minnowy than that? No, I mean, this is one of the things I love about um, the Europa League, the UEFA Cup in the past. But I think it's really kind of radicalised since since the change of format, where mm. you can look at Europa League teams and players and you can play that game where is it a team, is it a player, or is it a famous dish from where they're from. So <laughs> so you can have something like Swinebratten, right? Okay, is that like yeah. sort of... Lask Linz uh, winger or is it a kind of roast pork dish uh, with a bit of salsa from from that part of Austria? I'm saying food dish definitely yep. there. Yep, you're right 100%. there. Or Coupe Miners, for example, is is that a promising midfielder for Azit Alkmaar or is it a pea and ham soup typical of that part of Holland? Uh, I would say promising promising midfielder. Wow, you're two for two. There you go. Yes! So, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. You'll never get me on these, ever. You know that. Hi there, I'm David Ornstein, and I've launched a brand new show on YouTube, Ask Ornstein, where I answer questions from our athletic subscribers. To get your question answered, simply leave a comment at the bottom of my column every Monday, and I'll choose my favourites. To watch the show, head over to the TIFO Podcast YouTube channel, and a new episode will be up every Tuesday afternoon. This chat about the Europa League, uh, James Horncastle, boils down to one crucial question. What mm. is the first team that pops into your head when you hear the words Europa League? Carabag. Um, it's, it's, Interesting. It, it, it's got to be. Um, and, and also just like to have uh, this, to, to see players like Sardar, Sardar Asmoon, okay? Players who all of a sudden <laughs> crop up on like uh, the sun and the mirror when they're doing their transfer kind of stuff and saying... <laughs> Sada Asmoon linked with Liverpool, the Iranian Messi who has eight oh, horses yes. and he's a horse whisperer. This that to me is what's uh, his net worth? Is, 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 yeah, net worth, yeah, eight million, which would be a, a transfer record for an Iranian footballer or something. It's just all kinds of things like that. James Moore, who do you think in 
embodies, which club do you think embodies the Europa League in its current state the most? I mean, uh, the obvious answer, I guess, would be Sevilla, given they've won it so many times in the last sort of 15 obvious, years or so. Too obvious. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I do, okay, fine. I do also think of Shakhtar Donetsk, who, despite always being in the Champions League, as James said before, also seem to be in every single Europa League group too. <laughs> But I mean, the right the right answer uh, would be Club Bruges, who I understand have been in the Euro- who were in the UEFA Cup slash Europa League for twenty straight yeah. seasons from nineteen ninety six to twenty sixteen. Yeah, it has to be a Belgian team, like where you know you often you often are clueless as to whether it's Genk or Ghent, you know, that you're commentating on. They just seem to blur mm. into one, um, yeah. and. I, I think a, a shout out to, to a team that, again, I hadn't heard of until this season um, because I think I already thought there were just too many Wolves in the competition because you had Wolverhampton Wanderers, you had Wolfsburg and Wolfsburger, who I'm pretty sure were coached oh, by nice. Wolfgang Wolf. Um, yes, absolutely. Which, uh, it, it, that feels to me like there really is a glitch in the matrix. And, they should have uh, been drawn all in the same group. I don't, don't, seedings aside, you know... I don't I don't care about any of that. They should all be joining the same group for purely that purpose. Maybe they should. Yeah, maybe UEFA should mix out one season, and and they should just they should make the group stage draw based on species of animals in nicknames because overwhelmingly <laughs> it is animals. You can have shitload of eagles. It can be so many eagles. Um, yeah, different the, types kind of as well Balkans. with Besiktas and yeah. yeah. Sam says uh, Braga have Europa League DNA. I think Braga are a good shout because yeah. when I think of Braga, instantly into my head comes a newspaper headline: manager. X wary of Braga threat in a sort of preview-y thing. Kunal Shah says, most Europa League club of all, Sparta Prague, closely followed by Pauk and Heidek Split. They're very Europa nice. League, aren't they? Uh, yeah, I think, we've, I think we've nailed that. It would be remiss of us to talk about the, um, the lower depths of European competition without talking about the much-missed Cup Winners' Cup, James Moore. Does it, does it hold a special place in your heart? It does mine, certainly. I had a feeling you were going to say that, and it really, it really doesn't for me. For, oh. for me, the Cup Winners' Cup is like, I don't know, it's like, it's like Grandstand or the A-Team. Like, people say they want it back. <laughs> if it was back. If it was back, nobody would watch it. My abiding memory of the Cup Winners' Cup from my childhood, the only game I can remember watching, is between Liverpool and PSG from 1997. Okay. And Liverpool lost the first leg 3-0 and won the second leg at Anfield 2-0 it wasn't quite enough they didn't have quite the same Anfield magic at that stage as they obviously mm. do now didn't suck the ball in um, they didn't suck the ball in um, but I, I've just looked it up and that season Liverpool as you probably remember lost the previous cup final to Manchester United but Manchester United had done the double so Liverpool took the cup winners cup place and PSG weren't even in a domestic cup final the previous season they were there because they'd won the cup winners cup the previous season so not only was it not a game between two teams that won the cup it was technically the Cup Winners' Cup Winners' Cup. And I'll leave you to work oh, nice. out where the apostrophes go there. I can't I believe, yeah. I, I, I'm sensing James Moore was maybe too young to remember this, and this is why it has escaped his memory. But as a Spurs fan... I know, uh, yes. And uh, I'll tell you why I didn't... Well, you want to say what it is first. It's, it's <laughs> Naeem's 40-yard lob over what David oh, Seaman did in 1995. I think you've sold him short there on the yards, by the way. I think it's probably more like 60. <laughs> but uh, unfortunately, that night, I was at Cubs, so I missed it. Oh, wow. What a revelation that is. There you go. My Cup Winners' Cup experience is encapsulated by by Chelsea's run to the final in in 1998 and indeed lifting the trophy. These were the teams they faced along the way. This is just deliciously UEFA Cup Winners' Cup, greater than the sum of its parts. Slovan Bratislava in round one, Tromso in round two, which we all remember in the snow. The snow game. Yeah, actually, you know what? I did watch that as well. That was brilliant. That was Channel 5. That was was Channel 5. That was Channel 5's coverage just... The best thing. It's like, if you watched your team on Channel 5, you knew something absolutely absurd what? was going to happen in the away league. Was that and, and on Channel 5? Adam? It was, was it, it definitely was. Are you sure it wasn't I, just I, a snow made it look like you did? You had poor reception? No, no, it was on, on Channel 5. Channel 5 launched in 1997, I think, and that was one of their sort of feathers in their cap was obscure, really obscure European away legs. Then they had Real <laughs> Betis in the quarterfinals, which is a bit more exotic. Because uh, they had Danielson then, and and they were considered to be quite quite dangerous. Then Vicenza in the semi-finals, which on the on paper was a bit kind of rubbish, but also actually turned out to be a great tie. And then Stuttgart in the final, Zola scoring the winner. But that was on the BBC. The BBC just stole in at the end and went, ah, "Sorry, Channel Five, I think we can take it from here." And uh, and that's that, that to me is the Cup Winners' Cup. I've had enough about talking about obscure 
uh, European competitions and minnows. Let's get to the real top table, as we are obliged to call it, of European football, which is the Champions League. The kind of coronavirus-imposed last eight situation that we're going to have in Lisbon, James Horncastle, has raised the question that wouldn't it be nice if it was just like this every year where we just had straight knockout ties? Um, there's a yes and no debate to be had here. Where do you sit? Yes. I, 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 yeah, just to go back to the, the, the jeopardy that comes with a, a one-off tie, um, mm. be it, you know, sort of road to Volgograd, not that they'll ever get into the Champions League because uh, no. it's more or less a closed shop. Um, but the, the idea that you could lose one of the top teams earlier—that that's why the group stages came in. That's why these two-legged things came in to stop. I don't know Napoli getting knocked out in the first round by Real Madrid, albeit being yeah, Real course. Madrid. You, you want to yeah. see those teams regularly in it. It wouldn't be surprising if 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 this format—not um, the one-legged nature of it—but mm. you know we've seen games played on Friday nights, games played on yeah. weekends. This this yeah. is the new normal. The reason that the way the Champions League is formatted as it as it traditionally is is because it maximises revenue and you get lots more games, even though there are some really boring ones. But that's how revenue comes in. But James Moore, as a kind of a little addendum to the end of this this season, which loads of people seem to think is over when it's actually not, this is gonna be a this is gonna be like a mini Euro two thousand four. That's how I see the latter stages of the Champions League. It's <laughs> bloody brilliant! I don't care that there's nobody there. I'm over that now. It's gonna be great. I think so. You've got. A decent, a decent selection of teams there, a decent spread of countries involved. Mm. That we're going to see some good games, and you know, I honestly couldn't tell you who's going to win. You know, Barcelona clearly aren't in a in a, in a good moment, as we say. Mm. Manchester <laughs> City, have, Manchester City have sort of been a little bit hot and cold in the last few weeks, I guess, particularly because their matches haven't really been particularly important. So yeah, I, think I, I honestly another, couldn't tell who's going to win. It's, it's, I think it's going to be quite exciting. Another crucial aspect of this, this kind of condensed little format where we have a game every day, is that we, unlike the usual Champions League cycle, James Horncastle, we're not going to have this cycle of super previewing and super reaction because there's going to be no time for this. You're going to have a game every single day. It's going to be it's going to be like an actual tournament, like it should be. It's going to be free of all the flab of previewing and saying, well, they're a great team and I'm really looking forward to the challenge of playing them. Um, great team with a great history. And we don't have to listen to any of that crap anymore. It's just going to be there's a game and then there's another one tomorrow. And uh, it's uh, it's going to really speed up the news cycle, isn't it? Well, look, I'm delighted that two of my editors are basically telling me that um, there's no point writing anything after these games because it's just going so quickly. So <laughs> that just didn't mean we have to. We should have to dwell I'll, on them for very long. I'll just, sit, I'll just sit back and enjoy them. Um, <laughs> um, no, but I, I like how it comes thick and fast. It does feel like it's, uh, as you say, kind of more of a major international tournament rather than a, than a club tournament. And uh, I, I think, in some respects, this will be what various executives who like the idea of a U European Super League are kind of yeah, there is that. aiming yeah. at. Or these teams just stay in they just stay in Lisbon and never come back and say, we're basically, this is our breakaway league. This is the Trojan horse that no one's talking about, is that <laughs> none, none of these clubs are ever going to come back. They're going to basically play all these games at the Deluge, the Alvalad, and we lost them for good. Um, football's gone, literally. I mean, if, if that is the case, Atalanta have really lucked out, haven't they? They've really come good at the right time. <laughs> Can I share in a Stadio Jose Alvalad anecdote with you? Um, go for it. Uh, I, I, tentative about this, but let's go. I was at Euro 2004, uh, one of the greatest experiences of my life. I really enjoyed it. I, I, follow, I had a ticket that followed England all the way through the tournament, and um, they got knocked out by Portugal in the quarterfinals. So I had this ticket for Holland versus Portugal in the semis, which was at the Alvalade. And I was just footballed out by then, just completely fatigued. <laughs> so I sold my ticket to a Canadian. Uh, I should say a group of us sold our tickets to a set of Canadians and then three days later we went back to the Avalade and saw Phil Collins <laughs> I think I saw Phil Collins around the same time in, in wow Rome. maybe we was, were there uh, together man yeah. unashamedly fucking brilliant I don't care yeah, I had a really good time <laughs> stood in the middle of one of the stadiums in 2004 watching Phil Collins I don't mind I don't mind what people think I had a really good time I knew all the words um, hey, did you enjoy watching more that summer Phil Collins or Phil Neville uh, <laughs> Phil Collins doesn't let you down I mean, but, but and Phil Collins, like Phil Neville, is, has a kind of peripatetic kind of existence. He can he can do lots of things. He can sing. He can play drums, uh, just like Phil Neville can play anywhere across the back four. So in many ways, they're comparable. Thanks to our good pals at Beer52.com, you have the opportunity to sip eight delicious, painstakingly sourced craft beers from around the world. All you need to do is go to www.beer52.com forward slash cliches and pay the postage of four pounds ninety five. 
And as if that wasn't enough, as a listener of The Athletic Podcast, you'll get two extra free beers. So that's 10 free beers. Beer 52 are beer pioneers. They travel the globe to find the best and most interesting beer from the very best craft breweries. They are now the world's most popular craft beer discovery club. Each month, Beer 52 deliver a case with a different theme. Themes have included Germany, Korea, Belgium, South Africa, California, New Zealand and many more. As an independent UK company, Beer 52 are also passionate about the UK craft beer scene. The beauty of Beer 52 is that you can leave at any time. The power is in your hands. Your case will also include the award-winning craft beer magazine Ferment and a beery snack is thrown in too. Just go to www.beer52.com forward slash cliches to get your case free. And don't forget, right now, Football Cliches listeners get two extra free beers. I think it's important here that we construct the most Champions league Champions League group possible. <laughs> uh, I will, I'll offer you a suggestion from one of our listeners straight away. In fact, it's Carl Anker of The Athletic. He uh-huh. suggests Porto, Galatasaray, Leverkusen and Roma for that Champions League group that no one pays attention to until sides bizarrely have nine points each at the end. Yeah, that is known as the competitive balance group because it ensures that... Yeah, I feel like that that's a, a subcategory of what we're talking about here. Yeah. I, want a, uh, I want a cross-section, the perfect cross-section of a Champions League group. Hit me. Well, I also think Manchester United always seem to get a group that you know, raises a few eyebrows. So I, I've, I've put together my kind of classic Manchester United Champions <laughs> okay. League group, if you want. Okay. So yep. it's obviously United as the top seeds, uh, then Lille, uh, yeah. Basel, and and, and, <laughs> what, uh, and one of Olympiacos or late 90s Rosenborg. Um, oh, I also. do like that. Lovely. Mixing, mixing your eras there, which I think taints the effort there. But three out of four was superb there. I, I guess you could go with Olympiacos. I feel a bit more Arsenal-y. James, uh, James Moore, where do you sit on this one? Give me, give me your four. Well, I mean, if I was going to do a Manchester United group, I would definitely have Sturm Graz in there, one hundred percent. I feel like Manchester United played them every year in the nineties, didn't they? Uh, yeah, I mean, the Arnold Schwarzenegger arena. Exactly. Um, if I was doing a sort of a, a, a cliched group, it would have to have Leon, Leon in it as well. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. Leon were just everywhere you looked like 10 years ago for five or six years. They were they were just everywhere. Mm. So, yeah, let's have Sturmgratz, Leon. Oh, I think we need to have someone Eastern European, don't we? I don't want to mention Shakhtar again. I feel like I'm all Shakhtar out now. Yeah. Who else can we have? Actually, Dynamo Kiev. I, there was a, there okay. was a point in the mid nineties. Dynamo Kiev would, is quite nice. I would throw in a Victoria Pilsen or a a Batty Borisov. Oh, yeah. You know. Oh yeah. Let me. I love Batty Borisov. Actually, I like them. Um, our, our listeners have thought thought deeply about this. Ethan Henson suggests Juventus, Porto, Celtic, and Ludogorets, which is pretty good call. <laughs> Although. On the other hand, I just don't see Juventus and Porto playing each other. It's just not in my brain. I don't see them on the same pitch at the same time. So, not quite. Stephen McClay, he's put a lot of thought into this. Typical Champions League groups must contain a former winner, Barcelona or Porto, a club who you think have won it but actually haven't, Bayer Leverkusen, Paris Saint-Germain, a club with delusions of grandeur, Celtic or Angie Makachkala, and a former <laughs> Eastern Bloc club, Karabag or Dynamo Kiev. So, if you pick that apart, you could go with Barcelona... Leverkusen, Celtic, and Carabag. That would be good. Celtic yeah. and Barcelona belong together in the in the Champions League at some point. I feel like <laughs> feel like they've had a war of attrition at the new camp on average once every four years. So they're in there. Yeah. I literally hmm. just closed my eyes and saw Neil Lennon. <laughs> Another important part of the Champions League tapestry, of course, James Horncastle, is the anthem. Which I think is probably you must have heard quite a lot in your in your professional life by now. You must be uh <laughs> <laughs> it, but it is good, isn't it? It is lovely. It rolls so, along. Yeah, we associate with this football, but I think it's just one of the uh, most, uh, I don't know, I it just it, it brings out all emotions from it. I think it makes us all footballers. It makes us all want to be stood yeah. there whilst there are those kind of little mascots who are about six years old kind of billowing the kind of Champions <laughs> League ball in the centre circle. And, and, and we're there and we it's it's like... Nobody knows the lyrics, and yet we all sing it. We all make we all make them up, really. Um, and uh, composed by be... a British guy, of course. Yes, called yes. called Tony Britain. How how much more British could this guy get? <laughs> and Britain doing something for Europe, which you know, is, yes. is, it just doesn't. It, there's cognitive dissonance going on there. But you, um, you I know tell... this is. 
I know this is well-worn ground, but if we could just briefly dwell on the lyrics uh, in their English uh, version. Uh, they are the best teams. They are the best teams. <laughs> the main event. The master. The best. The great teams. The champions. A big meeting. A great sporting event. The main event. The master. The best. The great teams. The champions. They are the best. They are the best. These are the champions. The master. The best. The champions. It's like um, it's like it was put together not by Tony Britton. He probably did the music, but it was like it's put together by like a really, really early example of AI. And they said, right, could you just come <laughs> up with the most your English um, way to sum up football and then just spit it out? And then that's what they came up with. You can tell when a team is, is playing in the Champions League for the first time because their fans will inevitably bellow the champions at the end of that anthem just for no reason. They'll get really into it and just lose their minds. Yeah, I, I mean, when you were reading out the lyrics there, Adam, I must say yeah. it, it, it sounded like uh, Donald Trump's um, speechwriter. <laughs> really? I, yeah, and all of a sudden, it's cheapened that anthem in my in my mind. But I think this great is great sporting event. Great sporting event. Great, <laughs> great. The best. Um, but I, I do think these this are, is one these of are the, the champions. These are the champions. <laughs> it's one of the great theme tunes of, of modern times. You know, I, th I think this yes. is like there yeah. with uh, the Bond theme, or like the Mission mm. Impossible theme, or I don't know. Try to think of a, a like. Yeah, people seem to do the do 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 like with Game of Thrones. Yeah, that's the Champions League. You know, it's just it's 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 Actually, epic entertainment. Picking up on picking up on the Bond theme aspect, I can kind of imagine pretty much anyone associated with the higher echelons of UEFA or FIFA being 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 a kind of Bond villain. Alexander Seferin has a Bond villain's name <laughs> and does. kind of looks like one. Gianni, Gianni Infantino is perhaps too charming and nice to be a Bond villain. I can't imagine him being... I can't imagine him sawing someone's bollocks off or lasering <laughs> someone's bollocks off. Uh, Set Blatter, probably. Platini? Nah, maybe not. Maybe not. They all have their Bond villain equivalents, um, to be honest. I, I would say that Seferin is a little bit like Robert Carlyle's guy. In, yes. In the, the guy who can't feel pain, essentially. That, that seems <laughs> to be his thing. Um, Infantino is... Uh, who is the really lame one who's British and tomorrow never dies? I think that's kind of him, where it's just like, you're a bureaucrat, we're not interested. And then Platini's probably Drax, I would say, uh, from, from Moonraker. You could, you know, he's, he's got that kind of plumpness to him. Uh, you could imagine him on a kind of French French Palais sort of estate. This idea of, of James Bond rocking up at Gianna Infantino's massive uh, hideaway to stop him uh, making 48 teams for the World Cup is a really fascinating Bond plot. Um, but uh, we, we touched on Michel Platini, of course, and um, in what I consider to be, James Moore, the lowest key form of uh, alleged potential UEFA corruption was that his son-in-law composed the original Europa League anthem in 2008. You can kind of imagine how that conversation went, can't you? <laughs> Fancy you, uh... I mean, the fact of the matter is that I didn't even know that this thing existed and I must have watched so many Europa League games down the years. Yeah. Uh, and this is this is like a complete revelation to me that this exists, and it, it's it's pretty good actually. So credit yeah, it, to credit to Platini's son-in-law that he managed to come up with it. Yeah, Johann Zwieg, uh, James Horncastle, was the, is the res man responsible for this. This lasted for seven years until it was quietly replaced. So I I, I don't know what went on there in the in the halls of UEFA. But no, was that around the time that Platini was quietly replaced at UEFA? I don't imagine I, it probably I, I was. I don't think this is the one in the background at the moment. I don't think is Vig's work. Um, I, oh. I, I think I think this is the one that was put together by um, Massive Music, which had um, the string section from Metropole Orchestra and the prestigious Dutch Jazz and Pop Orchestra um, behind it, which combines wow. the kind of vocal layers with electronic beats and synths, um, mm. which mm. makes it feel like you are playing in Carabag or you know you you are going to the far reaches of the UEFA's domain um, to play a football game I feel game. like um, I feel like given given that at the heart of all this European competition is this is kind of approximation of everybody in Europe coming together and playing football I feel like massive music being the creators of this pretty much sums <laughs> it up <laughs> nothing particularly sophisticated just massive music nice <laughs> Champions League sponsors James Moore, Amstel, PlayStation, Continental Tires. Uh, am I being naive? I feel like my my brand affinity to those 
kind of things is huge. If I'm if I'm offered a selection of of continental cheap lagers, I probably would go for Amstel. I'm probably more of a PlayStation guy than an Xbox guy. And yes, when I have my tyres replaced, as I did three weeks ago, I went for Continental <laughs> tyres because of the <laughs> '90s Champions League. I was faced with an array of options, and I went, oh, Continental tyres because it just that's what I that's all I know. I'm a mug. I'm a Champions League mug. <laughs> Have you switched to Gazprom? That is the big question. Well, this is my next point. Gazprom has, has moved on to become this kind of weird cult football culture thing. And, you know, points of Gazprom and all that sort of But I don't know what Gazprom is. I don't know what they provide. It's just, just gas, right? That's just in the name, isn't it? Sorry. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. James, you mentioned a minute ago uh, those poor children whose job it is to wave the giant Champions League ball before every game. I assume they still do it. Um, Producer AD has a little story about this. He says, my old football coach used to have the job of trying to get kids to do it. They'd never, they'd they'd do it once, but never again. A bit like refereeing the FA Cup final. Um, They have to practice in the car park at Old Trafford the day before with some really stuffy UEFA official. (laughs) Can you imagine? Just like... This UEFA guy saying, no, you're not waving it high enough. Do it properly. <laughs> if you are not meeting the UEFA quota for flappage height. That's someone's job at UEFA really kind of sums UEFA up, maybe. In fact. <laughs> um, yeah. What's your job title? I'm uh, <laughs> coordinator <waver. laughs> of flapping massive Champions League ball. It's a great um, way to see Europe, though. I, I reckon it's actually just Platini's grandchildren. Uh, just uh, just all 18 of them waving that ball saying, well, Grandad said we had to do it. I offer you, James Moore, the name of Tunate Chakir, the referee yes. who does yes. all the matches in the Champions League. Are there any other referees in Europe? I can't think of any. Can you name a single other referee? Uh, who's the Swedish guy who's a millionaire? Like Frisk. Oh, no, not Frisk. No, it's not uh, Frisk. But the Swedish guy who's like a millionaire and yet has still decided to be a referee, which is like... I mean, there's an amazing '80s sitcom in that, probably. Well, uh, this 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 harks back to um, when when a referee is introduced at the start of a broadcast. It's also important to tell what his day job is. Now, you'll have really sort of boring day jobs, which I guess kind of makes sense. You know, they're all accountants or you know lawyers. Well, or it, 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 I think it's actually quite funny that James just brought that up because I've just put in referee millionaires, and it seems like they're all millionaires. Like Jonas Eriksson, I think that's the one you're you're, yeah, you're maybe be, referring that's, to. That, I mean, that sounds. And right. then. Of course, Bjorn Kuipers, um, according to the first news, <laughs> news report that comes up, England versus Sweden referee Bjorn Kuipers is millionaire owner of supermarket chain. <laughs> he told the Dutchman, 45, wow. told Neymar to shut up. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you've got a bit of weight behind you if you're the owner of a supermarket chain to tell Neymar to shut up. Uh, Marcus Merck, I think, was a dentist, oh, yeah. wasn't he? Perhaps he still yeah. is. Um there's that Kim, Kim, the guy who sent Beckham off. Kim, what was his Kim name? Kim Milton Nielsen, yeah. And then there's the Bond villain uh, named Victor Kassai. That is a great name. <laughs> there was Dick Yoll as well, wasn't there? Who uh, I think oh. for a while it was rumoured was related to Martin Yoll, but he's not. Is he I think Martin Yoll's, I think Martin Yoll's brother's actually called Cock Yoll, genuinely. Oh, sure for yes. Cornelius. Uh, I can see where the confusion exactly. may have happened there. Well, the final whistle has actually blown on this episode, funnily enough. So that was a nice way to end it. Um, I feel like I've learned a lot about European football and, and our little preoccupations with it. James, and indeed James, what stellar debuts you've made. Thank you both for joining me. It was a pleasure. Um, yeah, that was a walk down a European memory lane. James Moore, I think you negotiated that potential banana skin quite well. Well done. Yeah, thank you very much. We'll see who we get in the next round. Anyway. I'm pumped for the return of European football and I'm sure as hell hope that you guys are too. Thanks very much. See you next week.